Okay. So, God bless you. Good to have you with us. I was just thinking, anyone new apart from Sam? And most of us are familiar with one another. So, look, Sam, we're just continuing our, continuing our series in Galatians. We've gone right through the book. And we're just coming to a conclusion in two more addresses. So, hey, let me begin. So, I'm how old? What, 25? 40. Yeah, we'll stick with 40, okay, 40-ish, okay. So look, I was converted when I was 16, and it just so happened, uh, although um, I, I was uh, from an Islamic background, uh, I grew up in foster care uh, with Roman Catholic family to begin with, and then uh, uh, several others on that journey. But it was in that, uh, in that place I was encouraged to go to church, and I began going, uh, and then that was stopped, and then eventually my best friend was invited to a church and he came back and told me I was 16 by then, just coming to 16. And I just knew this is what I needed, what I wanted. And I went along, said to the pastor, you know, I want to be a Christian. And God had obviously been working in my heart all those years, preparing me. Uh, and he led me to the Lord. And me and about six or seven others, including my best friend from school. Okay. And we all went on for a few weeks, a few months. We were all enthusiastic about the church. You know, my friends were, I'm sure, more enthusiastic than me even. Uh, and our baptism came up within three months. And uh, we, we did a little course. And I said, yeah, well, I better get baptized too. Uh, as did our seven other friends, uh, including my best friend. And, and then within a few weeks, things began to change. One of my mates was talking about the pastor's wife in a horrible way. When, we, when, we, when the pastor would have us around. You know, and I said, this, this, this isn't right. I mean, I knew that. And within a few weeks, months maybe, there were just two left. Me and my best friend. By the grace of God, we're both in ministry now. But the other five or six, gone. They profess faith, they got baptized, they're gone. And here's the reality of that situation, friends. In Matthew 24, it's he who stands firm to the end will be saved. There's nothing in Christianity for starting. No matter how well you start, you can start an Olympic marathon race as a sprinter off the blocks. And, and the crowd might think it's brilliant. But if you don't cross the line 25 miles later, there's nothing. There's nothing. And so Paul in Galatians 6 writes, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Let me ask you, do, you know, do we know that verse? How, how is it interpreted generally? How do most people interpret that verse? Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. How is that normally interpreted? Serving God. And what's the harvest? Blessing. blessing. What kind of blessing? For who? For us. That is not saying, if I do lots of good gospel work, I'll reap a harvest. That's saying, we're going to look at it together, if I sow good seed in there, me, forget him, just you, and just me, okay? If I sow good seed here, I will reap eternal life. It's very personal. 
I want to show you that now as we look together. Our heading is this. There's a harvest of eternal life for those that persevere in sowing of good. There's a harvest of eternal life for those that persevere in the sowing. I think there should have been a there, there. In the sowing of good. Okay. This isn't salvation by works. But this is an essential part of Christianity. There's a harvest of eternal life for those that persevere in sowing of good. Let me show you verse 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself so you may also, otherwise you also may be tempted. The fact is, I can't get my watch off. (laughs) The fact is, what, what do you see? What does the apostle envisage here? Let me read that again. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, okay, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Who is he speaking to first? Christians, okay? What's he envisaging is a possibility <laughs> for Christians. Yet, yeah, it doesn't get quite there just yet. Yet, yeah, falling away is the end product, but just before they fall away... Caught in sin. Okay, so let me tell you this. No matter how spiritual you are, you are never beyond sin. Someone's right when he says, you know what, when an alcoholic gets delivered? You know what, he's either not drinking or drinking. You don't stop being an alcoholic. Okay, the battle goes on. And the thing about the Christian life, we may have come to faith, but hey, if you haven't realized it by now, you haven't left all of that stuff behind. I haven't. Okay, and Sam's already told us he hasn't. Okay, so there's a reality here that a Christian can get ensnared in sin. And it's not just momentary. It's not like saying a Christian can just have a moment of sin. No, it's much stronger. Listen to this. Brothers, if someone is caught... The idea is entrapment, okay? You're not being able to break free. It seems that a professing Christian can have a season at least where he's so embezzled in a particular sin that he's trapped. So there is no instantaneous perfection. Justification, this is going to sound awful, is a lie. Why do I say that? Justification is a lie. Why do I say that? What is justification? Where God instantly declares us the moment we believe you're holy, you're right. But that's a lie. You didn't become holy the minute you got converted, and neither did I. You see, justification is only for God's purposes. Yes, it is. It's for his purposes to declare you're right. He can now accept you as a son, otherwise he can't have anything to do with you because you're a filthy stinker. But justification does, he instantly positionally makes you holy in his sight by giving you Jesus, but you're not really holy. It just makes you holy in his sight, whereby he can now relate to you. Otherwise, you're a stinker. He doesn't want anything to do with you. Okay? But beyond justification is the process of sanctification, and that's what the real righteousness is. That's what really becoming holy is, and that's a process that takes time. It's a journey But nevertheless, it's a journey that the Christian is on. Remember what Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery? John 8, neither do I condemn you. So he doesn't condemn her for adultery, but he doesn't just say, 
go on. The bloke's waiting for you around the corner. He doesn't say that, does he? Okay, Sam, whoever sits on the front gets a, gets a beating from, the, from Montez. Okay, it's the wrong seat. Okay, right. Now, now, what does he say to her? Go now and leave your life of sin. And what Jesus is envisaging here, she's being justified. Jesus declares that you're not condemned, but go from this juncture and leave, turn your back on, walk away from sin. And so the idea is that we're moving away from it. So here's Paul's point. Paul's point is this. So if someone is caught in sin, so it's a very real, very real reality, there are people in this building right now who are caught up in some gross sin. And even if it's not gross in some sin, particularly that's, that, that's continually eating away at us, okay? You who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. So being entangled in sin is not foreign to Christianity, but what's the expectation? Paul is not saying, yeah, you're going to be entangled in sin. Oh, never mind. What's he saying? What's he expecting by what he's saying here? He's saying, be careful. He's saying something more. You're going to, you're going to get caught in sin, but what's he expecting? Yeah, he's expecting it's going to change by assistance. Okay, so nobody's left in sin. Okay, he's expecting there's going to be change and that change is going to come about by... That's why you should not be at home now sitting doing Christianity with your Bible. Don't, give, don't tell me I'm reading my Bible when I'm not going to come here. It doesn't mean anything to me. Okay, you shouldn't be doing solo Christianity Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You can't do solo Christianity. Let me tell you, when you fall into a pit, how are you going to get out? How are you going to get out? Because you won't pull yourself out. There's no such thing as solo Christianity, okay? If you're practicing solo Christianity, let me tell you now, it's not Christianity. There's only one form of Christianity the Bible knows, and that's this form. It's corporate. We're here today out of desperation. I can't live my Christian life by myself in my study. It's dangerous. Every time that computer's on, it's a dangerous environment for me to be in. Okay? We need brotherhood. So now it's important, okay, to keep it. So we're going to get to how this happens, but we need to keep in context. What has the whole of Galatians been about up to now? You've heard me over and over again. Okay? What's, what have we been saying over and over again? Someone tell me. Out with Moses and justification by faith alone okay so that's the context you, you, you must never read the bible out of its context that's the context so in that context then verse 2 carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of christ what's he saying there yeah yeah montage you've been talking about all this law stuff going what's going on now then okay well you, we're jumping ahead so, but let me get there. What is this law of Christ? It's not just quite that. Okay, what is this law of Christ? Okay, it is relational. And Jim's got the right. The first thing it is, the law of Christ is not the law of... That's the first thing. Okay, this is the confusion that we get, people can have sometimes. The first thing is, we're not talking about the same thing. The law of Moses is gone, remember. 
Okay? So the Lord of Christ is not the Lord of Moses. And Paul will tell us that in, in Corinthians. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians 9. Listen to Paul here. To those not having the law, Greeks, the uncircumcised, I become like one who doesn't have the law. So I do everything I can to win people to Jesus, you see. Though I myself am not free from God's law, but I'm under... He's not under Moses. Who's he under? Christ's law. The Christian is under a law. It's no longer Moses. It's Christ's law. What is Christ's law? Yes, it is. Jesus only gave. I don't know if you know this. Jesus has only given one command to his church. It does incorporate that. It's here it is. It's John 13. Okay, listen to this. This is the only command is given to the church. A new command I give you. What is it? Love one another as I have loved you. And what does Galatians tell us that that one command does? Galatians 5, Paul tells us, Do not use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature. Serve one another in love. For the entire law of Moses, which is no longer in force, because it's now summed up in one in one command we don't have 613 laws we don't even have 10 commandments we have one okay and that one commandment is the fulfillment of every expectation of jesus on the life of, of christians and therefore okay when he says carry each other's burdens this way you will fulfill the law of christ he's not thinking of moses he's thinking of love and it's the love that therefore carries the burdens of other Christians. What's it Paul envisaging Christians will do in this church to help other Christians who are struggling with entrapment in sin? What's he envisaging there? Love one another. How? How's he? What's his practical advice? Trust him. Verse two. Carry. Okay. If I'm, carrying, if I'm helping Sam carry his burden, I don't do it from here. How do I help him carry a burden? I've got to come alongside him. I've got to get involved. Okay? I've got to cross the line. I've got to put myself out there. Okay? I've got to watch what's going on in his life. I've got to come close enough to see what he's doing. See, look, if we've got people in our circles who are struggling with self-control around alcohol, self-control with images on computers, self-control with gambling, self-control with drugs, they're not going to get out of it themselves. They need... And look, here's the reality. Ever before we run to the world, look, the world has got things that can be used to us, but before we run to them... Where do, where do we always almost fail to neglect to run to? We heard it in his testimony. In his wife's testimony. We, you know, what is, what, who do we fail to turn to? He's always the last person, isn't it? We'd rather have him out there because he's wearing a badge. Well, I'm wearing a badge. Okay, he's wearing a badge. And we forget who is the biggest healer out there. Who knows more than anything about this? He made it. He can tweak your brain like that okay run to him first okay so here's the issue so so that means brothers and sisters if you've got an issue turn to someone in the church ask them to come alongside you or better still 
look out for one another. If someone is issue, has got an issue with drugs, hang out with them more. Have them around your house more. Spend a bit more time with them. Keep them from having all that time to fidget, to think, to be desperate. Line up, connect the phones with each other. Tell that person, the minute you have any urge, you ring me. Set up structures to help each other. I think that's Paul's point. You who are spiritual, I think his point is, those of us who don't have those difficulties, come alongside those, those that do and help carry the burden. Let me tell you about Zacchaeus. I love Zacchaeus, not just because I'm small. There's other small people in this church, not just me. Okay? No mentioning any names, okay? Or looking at any particular direction, Okay? But of late, I've felt much better about myself you know, <laughs> since we've had some new members in the church. Okay, I love Zacchaeus. This okay, because, because look, you know, look what it does to see Jesus. You know, this, is, this was embarrassing. It's unbecoming of an adult. Okay? He's got big issues. This guy has sold out to the Romans. Do you know that? Do you know how the Romans appointed these tax, co tax collectors? It was a bidding system, and the highest bidder, the person who paid the most, earned the role. You bought the role. And then they paid you nothing for the role. How did you earn your living doing that job for the, for the Romans? Yeah, you ripped people off. The more you collected, the more you can skim off it to pay your wages. He was a crook. He wasn't rubbing. See, if he was rubbing the Romans, the Jews would love him. He was rubbing who? His own people, for goodness sake. His own people. It's a traitor to the nations. Okay, that guy needed help. Who was who? Who had come alongside him to help him? Just before we get there. Nobody. Nobody. Nobody did. We know. We're assuming nobody did because, because guys got in big trouble. So what does Jesus do to help this guy? He doesn't even preach a sermon to him. Do you know what he does? Because Lazarus, come here. I'm coming around to see you. I'm eating at your house. He goes to his house. He eats with him. We're assuming he's <coughs> talking with him. He's, he's maybe even highlighting some of the issues in his life, but he's come alongside him. He's carrying his burden. The result of which, what happens, what happens to him? He, he does. Jesus' presence has an impact on him. This guy is a changed character overnight. Now, look, that's an instantaneous success. It doesn't always happen like that. But the principle I want to show you is how Jesus, and this is God, on a busy schedule, okay, to preach to the nation. And he stops at this guy's house and comes alongside him. Christian, how solo has your walk been this week? Who have you, whose tree have you come up to and said, hey, come down. I'm coming around your house today. Seriously, when was the last time we phoned somebody up and said, I'm coming over today. You know, I'm meeting you at lunchtime. You know, you're coming over for coffee. You're not saying, do you want to? No, you say, I'm coming over. Okay? Jesus didn't say to Lazarus, can I come round? What did he say? Get down, I'm coming. Okay? Friends, we've got to come alongside each other and help each other. Obviously, there needs to be discernment. If you've got an issue with drugs, you don't want to be trying to help a Christian who's got issues with drugs. It's just not the wise thing. But however we do it, Paul insists we're to carry each other's burdens. That's how we fulfill the law of Jesus. 
That's how we love each other. It's why I say Christianity is not solo. If we're trying to live solo Christianity, let me tell you, you're, back, you're backslidden. So I'm in this church, we just tell you that how it is. Okay? <coughs> if you're living solo Christian, you're backslidden. You cannot live Christianity without the brotherhood. Let me move on to verse 7 to 10. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. Who's he preaching to? He's preaching, yes, but who's, who's, his, who's his congregation? The church, the Galatian church, okay? So he's, so he's not preaching to the unconverted here. He's preaching to the church. So that's the first point, okay? And he's telling the church. People have been baptized. People that came into faith under whose ministry? Paul's his own ministry. He's telling his own converts. Do you get the message? He's telling his own converts. Listen to me. Do not be deceived. Okay? I baptize you, but don't be deceived, Jack. Okay? A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. What is Paul saying to the baptized disciples that he's made in the Galatia? What's he saying to them? You're not saved. You're not in. If you're doing this. You see, that is the mark of genuine conversion, as Paul sees it. His point is, is that having been converted, if all I now do is feed my sinful nature, its insatiable nature for sin, that old nature that should be crucified and should be gone, if I don't put into place structures to limit my access to these sins, if I don't make an active effort to fight them, if I haven't got friends around me who are helping me and carrying me through these, if I don't take sin seriously, then that soul will finally give me a wage for all the work I've given it, and not wa yeah, a wage, and that wage will be, says Paul, death. Romans 6.23. What is the wages of sin? Next verse, please. Sorry, we'll stop there. What is the wages of sin? It's death. It's a bit like this. Look. Hey, you do this, don't you, Graham? So look, I'm going to pretend I'm, I'm, I'm a horticulturist. So I know nothing about it. But look, look, if I plant pumpkin seeds, okay, in Graham's garden... Oh, we use Graham. If Graham plants pumpkin seeds in his garden and then says to Sam, 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 I'm waiting for the apples to grow in my garden. What will, what will he think? What do you think of him? He's mad. If he's planting pumpkin seeds in his garden, he's not going to get apples. He's going to get strawberries. What's he going to get? Pumpkins. Pumpkins. It's universal. If I keep planting pumpkin seeds in my garden, no matter how much I want apples, I will always ever only get pumpkins. Now listen to this. Do not be deceived, friends. 
The one who sows to please the sinful nature will from that sinful nature reap destruction. I can say I'm a Christian till I'm blue in the face, but if, if all I do through the week is feed that old nature, ultimately it's saying and will demonstrate and I'll reap from it, not eternal life, hell. Look, if I just watch movies that glorify adultery, what do you think that's feeding? What do you think that's feeding? If I just watch movies when they're undressing all the time, every five minutes, what's that feeding? If I watch adverts that are always about the next best kitchen that I can have, what's that feeding? My craving for materialism. If I'm, if I'm going to places where, the, where, there's, where there's people playing the wheels, okay, and, and, and throwing the cards out, and I don't even know the terminology because I don't go there, Troy does, okay, okay? Uh, keep throwing the die. What do you call that? You know, Sid, don't pretend you do. Don't, okay? Right. Like, if, I, if I'm going there constantly, what's that what's feeding? As a Christian... We've got to watch where we go, watch what we watch, you know, watch where we are. We've got to take precautions, and that's Paul's point. And be mindful that what I'm sowing here. Let me ask you, every Sunday morning, I keep going on about this, because it's essential to your faith. Every Sunday morning, what have I got to be sowing here? Good sound Christian songs. Okay. Good sound Bible reading. Good sound preaching. You're thinking, I better go to another church then. But whatever you can get it, okay? You've got to be sowing. Okay, when you wake up and before you go to bed and your lunch hour, what are you sowing? Look, if you, look, when I used to work, I used to spend my whole morning with guys who talked about sex. Lunchtime, what do, I, what do I need to do to ensure that my mind is emptied of this junk? Let's get the Bible out. Let me ask you, do you ever read the Bible at lunchtime? Yeah. Let me ask you another question. Do you ever read do I ever read the Bible? Hey, and don't assume just because I preach in the church I read the Bible for myself. Oh, I can maybe write a sermon, but you should ask me, Montes, are you reading the Bible to cultivate your soul? You know, do we read the Bible? So friends, Paul's point is simply this. If we keep feeding that soul from that soul, from that nature, we will reap destruction, which tells me I can't hang, hang my comfort and my assurance of salvation on my profession of faith. I must anchor it in my ongoing sowing of the right seeds into my heart as I trust in Jesus. Now the flip side. So the one who sows to please the sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The flip side. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Can you see the contrast? And hence my point. There's a harvest of eternal life for those that persevere in sowing good. Paul wants them to stop sowing the seeds of the Greek culture around them with all the destruction that it involves and everything around them and instead to sow to please the Spirit. What does that look like? Someone tell me. What does it look like for me to be sowing to please the Holy Spirit? 
Yes, when I get that seed, that's a very important part of it. So initially, at least, okay, it's a reverse. It's putting things into my heart and life that are conducive to spirituality. And submitting to Him. It means labor. Look, let me tell you, when I was back in Kent, my first church was in southeast England. It's very rural, part of Great Britain, so they're always farming. And I used to love scenes like this. Look, it was never that golden. We don't get enough sunshine, okay? <laughs> I think that's Australian. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, next time Ali does a picture, it's got to be, be uh, context-related. Look, I've never seen a sky like that until I came here. <laughs> uh, okay, right. Look, so you have these fields and, and you know, towards you know, the, end of the end of summer, and it, it's great, it's lovely. Uh, and I just love to see those bales of hay rolled up like that. But it tells you what's happened. What's, what's gone on there? There's been a harvest. But why was it a harvest? Somebody? Somebody saw. You know, I've seen lots of harvesting in Kent when I was there. Lots of it. Always driving by, someone's always harvesting. I've never seen sowing. Does that mean it never happened? No. Because it happens in the autumn when no one's watching, when no one takes any notice, when the farmer's out there, he's on his tractor, his computerized tractor. Do you know this? These things cost $200,000 because they're completely satellite navigated. There's not even a guy in the cockpit, right? He loads it up and it goes. And a satellite steers it to get perfect. That's why they're always so perfect, okay? He steers it to plant all these things by itself. But that work, though I've never seen it, is what results in that. If he never done that, there would never be that. The point is simply this. If we never sow, if we don't do the sowing when no one is watching. Look, no one knows what you do when you go home, mate. So you do whatever you want, but you won't get a harvest. Okay? You won't get a harvest. Yeah, the harvest of the wrong kind, thank you. Okay, so when no one is watching, okay, when no one knows, remember what did God commend Noah for? Of all the people, the people in his generation were all ungodly because nobody cared what anybody else did, did they? Except for? Okay, so no one else may be doing it, and the rest of the people in church may not really care about holiness, but you must. You must sow seeds to please the Spirit. Proverbs says, a sluggard sows not in season, and so at harvest he finds nothing. If I'm not feeding my soul good spiritual nourishment, there will be no spiritual harvest. But Paul in particular is not talking, talking about general sowing here. He deals with that in other books of the Bible. Here he's talking, and Sid said it earlier, he's talking about a specific type of sowing in this context. What do you think, what kind of sowing is he thinking? In context, we've already been looking at it in context. Look, verse 1, verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest. What's this good? Verse 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you yourself may be tempted. Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the Lord of Christ, which is, we said John 13, love one another. What's, what kind of sowing is Paul envisaging here that will give us an eternal harvest of it, if it's eternal life? What kind of harvest? It is. Yeah, he is. He is. Paul's envisaging that the Christian sows into his new spirit nature 
by sowing good seeds into the lives of fellow believers primarily and the world beyond that. Paul is expecting, and this is where James comes in, I haven't got time to quote it, but Paul is definitely expecting a form of works that are associated with ongoing Christian walk. Look at verse 10. Therefore, and this is even clear here, as we have opportunity, therefore, so he's following on his argument about doing good, about sowing into the, to the soul of the Spirit. Therefore, as we, uh, as we have opportunity, let us do good. Same phrase there, to all people, especially to the people of the family of God. Can you see what Paul is saying? That there's some relationship, and without ruining justification by faith, there is some relationship between how my Christian life looks in regards to what I'm doing towards others and where I really stand in the faith. Can you see his point? That, that, that my faith expresses itself, that is true and genuine faith, that I'm truly sowing good seeds as I sow good in the lives of other people. And notice how he starts. Let us do good to who? So let us sow good seeds to who? Who? This is important. Yeah, who does that, who does that mean? It doesn't mean you, Lorraine. It means them out there. Okay, that means that I have an obligation that's a part of my Christian life, as a confirmation of where I stand in Jesus, the way I feed this new spiritual nature is that I do good to terrorists, atheists, bad neighbors, horrible employers, the people I don't like. It means I have never have an excuse. I've never got a valid excuse to be less than human to another human. You see, social justice is not for them out there to do. Who is the primary candidate for doing social justice? The Christian. Because what did Jesus do? Look, look. He's absolutely a gospel preacher. But what did he do everywhere he went? Social justice. Everywhere he went. When he saw the widow bereaved of her son, what did he do? Raised her son to life. When he saw a crowd of 20,000 people, 5,000 men, he had, who hadn't eaten for days because they are following him, he had compassion on them. What did he do? Feed them. The reason I taught them, yeah, teaching it goes, Jim. So we have to be led by the Holy Spirit because if we give good things to people, not being led by the Holy Spirit, we may not be helping. Oh, we've got to be wise, absolutely. And the spiritual lady doesn't, thank you, Jim. There's a way that we can help people. You don't help somebody drinking by just putting cash into their hands, do you? Thank you very much, Jim. So look, here, look, listen to James. Listen to James. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is that? Verse 17, in the same way, listen to this. Don't shoot the preacher. I'm just a servant. Okay? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. That's serious stuff, guys. The Christian, therefore, ought to be the first candidate on a plane to the tsunami region. 
Really? We should be the first ones. We should be fighting to get on the plane first, to provide relief and support and assistance and, and, and to help people rebuild their lives. Social justice, let me say this, look. Social justice is not the gospel. No matter what anybody tells you, social justice is not the gospel. When you are doing social justice, that is not an excuse for the gospel. That is not the gospel. And that's where the confusion comes. Social justice is not the gospel. It's not the Great Commission. Let me tell you, which part of Matthew 28, which part of Matthew 16 tells you to do social justice? Which part? It doesn't. Okay, so let me get that clear. Social justice is not the gospel. Social justice is not the commission. And the church of Jesus Christ must never confuse social justice with the gospel. Is that, is that understood? The church of Jesus Christ must never confuse social justice with the gospel. By doing that, you're not preaching the gospel. They're two distinctly different things. However, big capital H, okay, bold, underlined, big font, okay? However, social justice is the effect of converted Christians. Do you see that? Social justice is not the gospel. It's the effect of the gospel on a person. When we get converted, when Christ's Spirit fills us, what do we feel when we see people in desperate need? <coughs> compassion. Welling up, not just sheer on compassion. But the Spirit of Jesus welling up inside us, stirring us and moving us to act for their good. Let us therefore do good to all people, especially to, the, uh, to all people. But the second part, especially to the household of God. Which means, yes, we do all the good we can to our world as an effect of the gospel on our lives. Never confusing it for gospel work. But we especially do good. To Jesus. Yes, to Jesus, but to, yeah, to here. This is your first family. How he's doing in his walk, how he's doing materially, and how he's doing at work, and every other thing is our first and primary concern. It starts there. But reaches out to the world. My time is gone. So look, I need to finish. Let me just tell you quickly about uh, the Earl of Shaftesbury in the 19th century. Uh, look, he changed. He bullied and harassed Parliament as a Christian and transformed the working rights of children. You know they were sending kids as young as five down coal mines. Do you know that? To earn a living? Men like him who changed the landscape of Britain. Let me ask you, why, why did he do that? Why? Why? Because the Spirit of Jesus, residing in his heart, stirred him to compassion and to action and transformation. And he sowed good seed 
as he labored to work for the good of that country and consequently the world, no doubt. And so the point is simply this, Christian. I've got to finish, and I keep saying that. Let me finish now. If we sow to please our sinful nature, we will reap destruction, no matter what you believe. If we sow to please the Spirit, it's confirmation that we're going to reap eternal life. And that, in this context at least, looks like social justice in the name of Jesus to the world out there, but primarily grace to one another. There should be nobody in this church suffering alone. So there are two things you've got to do. Number one, if you're the suffering person, share it. Sadly, we don't always pick up on these things, do we? Share it. Pick up the phone with somebody. Stop being such a, you know, such a, what's the term? You know, uh, uh, you know, yeah, you know, and tell somebody. Tell somebody you can't pay your bills. Tell somebody you're struggling with your computer. Tell somebody you're struggling with this. And the second thing, the rest of us, go and find someone to help. Make a partner in this church that you are responsible for spiritually. And let's help each other. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to the household of God. Amen. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we bow. Hey, who is sufficient for these things? Grant us grace then, Lord, to show where we really stand by how we really conduct ourselves, both in private and in public, both in social justice to our world and in grace to one another, but never forgetting the mandate to the church to make disciples of all nations. Amen.